Welcome to the Divine Service for Catechesis. Today is session 29 in this year's uh, edition. We move now to the last section of the six chief parts of the Catechism, uh, namely the Sacrament of the Altar. So we have been through the Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, those first three, which highlight the baptismal life, dying with Christ in repentance, being raised with him by his word of forgiveness in the gospel, and then the life, the holy life of prayer, the life of faith that calls upon God, so commandments, creed, and Lord's prayer. And then the second half of the catechism, the next three chief parts, the sacramental section, baptism, absolution, and now the Lord's Supper or the sacrament of the altar. A few comments on that in just a moment, but let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Lord, in this wondrous sacrament, you have left us a remembrance of your passion. Grant that we may so receive the sacred mystery of your body and blood, that the fruits of your redemption may continually be manifest in us. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And the collect, that short prayer, in today's lesson under 22, is the historic collect for Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday in the evening when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The comment I wanted to continue on with, but we needed to pray first, is the title of this section of the Catechism, the Sacrament of the Altar. And what I want to do throughout today's session, and then also uh, the next two weeks, is highlight things from the liturgy, liturgical practice, uh, as we go, rather than holding that off to the end. We call the Lord's Supper by various terms, the Lord's Supper. There's one term, Holy Communion. There's another term. In the Old Testament, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament, Book of Acts, the breaking of the bread. That was the uh, earliest term for it. The Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means thanksgiving, taken from the Lord's uh, words, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, Eucharist. The Catechism has sacrament of the altar. And there's a great um, wisdom and ingenious catechetical device going on here with that title. In the Catholic tradition, with a small c, of which we are a part, the altar signifies Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. So by calling the Lord's Supper the sacrament of the altar, Luther intends to make a connection between the Lord's body and blood here that rests upon the altar and the death of Christ where his body was offered up and his blood was shed. You might find it interesting to note that historically, and it's true of our altar, the fair linen 
has five embroidered crosses on them, one at each of the four corners, and one in the center upon which the chalice of wine, the paten of bread, rest. So what do those five crosses signify? The wounds in Jesus' hands, feet, and side out of which the blood and water flowed. In the Protestant, non-Catholic tradition, the missile stand typically was here. And that understanding in the liturgical practice meant that the altar was chiefly about where we offered our sacrifice of prayer to God. In the Lutheran Catholic tradition, the missile stand is simply a utilitarian stand to hold the liturgy. At the center of the altar, you see it as the place where the Lord's Supper resides, so it becomes sacramental. In other words, divine service, the Lord giving to us. So there are lots of things in the historic liturgical practice of worship which unfortunately have not been taught. And then so people think it's just stuff that's done and it has no particular significance. That's why I'm, I'm helping you and we'll continue this today and then in the, in the next two weeks to show you some of these connections. So the sacrament of the altar, what an appropriate term. It also means that it has a place the sacrament of the altar, the divine service of the Lord's body and blood is when the congregation gathers together. So it is God's service to us. John, did you have a question or are you just stunned beyond belief? Exactly. Okay, Polly? I do have a question. So where should this be taught? It should be taught in places like this. Well, and also in the seminaries. Indeed, also in the seminaries. Yeah, what we do liturgically ought to have purpose and meaning. It ought to teach and it ought to reflect the teachings of God's word. That doesn't mean that liturgical practices like a paschal candle is something upon which the church rises or falls, but certainly what the paschal candle stands for which is the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, is uh, fairly central. So things that the church has done, we should reflect upon why has the church done this. And in Luther's time, he wanted to retain everything that he could in the church's liturgical practice as long as it wasn't a contradiction or a violation of the gospel. And in so many cases, uh, practices actually reflect the gospel. And one of the things, uh, among the things I'll highlight today is how liturgical practices highlight the real presence. Namely, that's a, a catchphrase, that Jesus actually gives us his body to eat and his blood to drink for forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Since that is what it is, then it ought to be reflected in the care in which we 
conduct the liturgy and offer the sacrament to the baptized faithful. Okay, uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. Kathy? Uh, Kathy asked about that candle that's lit up there. That uh, candle is technically called the tabernacle lamp. It actually comes from Roman tradition. And the tabernacle lamp being lit signified the consecrated host, the body of Christ, present. Protestant churches, and then Lutherans globbed on to this, thought, isn't it nice to have that lamp always lit? And they started to call it the eternal light, kind of this ubiquitous general presence of God, the omnipresence of God. But originally, it was a lamp that would signify that the body of Christ was present, having been left over from the Mass. Now, we don't have a tabernacle here. Uh, there are no elements at the moment that have been consecrated. That will happen shortly. And we don't reserve the host. We consume everything. But that was donated, I don't know by whom, many years ago. And uh, it was here when I came, and so it continues to be here. I mean, there is uh, an element of truth that... <coughs> God is present everywhere, but you can't use the idea, God is present everywhere, so what do we need the real presence of the Lord's Supper for? I don't know. His presence in the Lord's Supper is unique. His body and blood is given and shed there for the forgiveness of sins to strengthen our faith in him and our love for one another. Okay, But that's, that's what it's from. Okay. Yes, Sue. Yes, the guy laying on the table is Judas Iscariot, right. And he's about to dip. So he who dips with me in the dish, he is the one, Jesus said. Okay, Exodus chapter 12. And what I'm going to do is we're going to read uh, the 14 verses together and then uh, go through the bullet points I have under the outline number two. Before reading it, let's talk some background. The Passover. What do you know about the Passover? Well, let me help you for the sake of the recording, because sometimes it doesn't pick up so well when you're talking and we are trying to record it. The Passover is the foundational sacrifice for the Old Testament church. I have that in your outline. Think about the Old Testament church. You have the uh, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve turn away from God's word. They fall into sin, not coincidentally, by doing what? Eating the forbidden fruit. So eating was a part of the fall. Eating is a part of salvation. Namely, the eating of his body and the drinking of his blood. Uh, after the fall into sin, God made a promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. 
And then we have the period of the, sometimes it's called the primeval period, but it, it culminates in the great baptismal event of the flood. Noah and his family, and they come out of the flood, and what do they do? They offer sacrifices to the Lord. The, uh, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, the Lord, I mentioned yesterday in Bible class, clothed them with the animal skins. So there was sacrifice there. After Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, there is then the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the languages. And then God chooses Abram to become his own special people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the so-called patriarchs, chief fathers of the children of Israel. Israel was chosen as God's people for the benefit of bringing salvation to all the nations. And so the promise made to Abraham was, in you, Abraham, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So fast forward to the church, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So as Abraham walked with God by faith in the promise of salvation, which is a promise of salvation for all the nations, so the apostles and the church was called to make disciples of all the nations. So you see the missionary evangelistic character of the promise made to the patriarch Abraham and its fulfillment in Jesus sending out the church to preach the gospel to the nations. Back to the patriarchs, you remember the 12 sons of Jacob. They were envious of Joseph, their second youngest brother. They sold him into slavery. And that became a picture as he went into Egypt and, and Jacob and his other sons eventually came down there during the famine and then Pharaoh turned upon them after the death of Joseph and subjected the Israelites to slavery. That 400 years of slavery in Egypt is a type, a pattern. Now, it really happened. There was really Egyptian slavery, but it was a pattern. It was a type of our bondage, humanity's bondage to sin, humanity's bondage to death, humanity's bondage to the power of Satan, which was God's own law, You've eaten, you must die. Okay? So to be delivered from slavery in Egypt foreshadowed the redemption, the deliverance that we have in the blood of Christ. And that exodus out of Egypt from slavery to freedom happened by the shedding of the Passover lamb's blood. We are all enamored with the ten plagues of uh, Egypt, you know, from the changing of water into blood to the death of the firstborn. But from God's point of view, theologically, what secured their release from slavery was the shedding of the lamb's blood. Does that have a familiar ring to you? That points forward to the shedding of Jesus' blood 
John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So in this first bullet, when we talk about the Old Testament Passover as being foundational sacrifice for all of the Old Testament church, the, the uh, sacrifice that God called Abraham to make of his son Isaac, you know, take your son, your only son whom you love, that took place before the Passover, but it foreshadows what God would do in the Passover, what God would do in Jesus, his only son for us. And then when they did leave Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai, the Lord provided this entire liturgy of divine service where he would meet them at the tabernacle of the Lord in the daily sacrifices, in the daily confession of sins, in the daily absolution, burnt offerings, sin offerings, thank offerings, a Eucharist, all of that rested upon the foundation of God providing deliverance and freedom through the Passover. Okay? So understanding that background becomes significant. The Passover is not just one of many things that happened in the Old Testament. It is, I love this word, constitutive. You know, it constituted them as a people from that time forward when they let, they, I mean, they were a, they were a people when it was uh, uh, Jacob and his 12 sons before they went to Egypt, but it was more like just a big family, like the Karis family, you know, it was a big family. But when they come out of Egypt, this is a nation. Um, and it is the Old Testament church. So notice also, as we now get into the, the reading of the Passover institution, that there in this first bullet still, it's a one-time offering, and it's an ongoing feast. It's a one-time offering, and it's an ongoing feast. What did they do when they slaughtered the Passover lamb the very first time, what did they do with that lamb's blood? They painted the doorposts and the lintel of the houses. Everyone who was in the house was safe from the angel of death who would pass over them. That's how it gets its name, would pass over. So they were protected, shielded by the blood of the lamb. Does that have a familiar ring to you? Everyone in the house was protected by the blood of the Lamb. The house is an icon, a picture of the church. What brings us into the church? Holy baptism. The content of the water of baptism is the blood of Christ that covers our sin. He who is protected by the blood of Christ and trusts in that blood, see his blood now marks our door, faith points to it, death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. But every year after that, when they celebrated the Passover, they no longer painted blood on the doorposts and lintels. That was once. But they did eat of the Passover lamb every year thereafter. You follow? So that's why it says it's a one-time offering, but it's an ongoing feast. And not in our reading explicitly today, but a little bit later in Exodus 14, the children were to ask questions, what is the meaning of this? And then they would recall the history, the saving acts of the Lord. We do the same thing in the divine service 
through preaching, through catechesis, we are recalling the saving acts of the Lord so that we might receive by faith the Lord's body and blood. Okay, so let's go into the text itself. Good. Well, it's important to see the big picture. We can tend to lose things for the trees, you know, when we're smack up against them. Yep, it's all tied together, Tom. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Notice how in instituting the sacrament, he's changing the calendar. It is as if the Lord is saying, This is the most important event above all events for you, children of Israel. Just like we would say, this death and resurrection of Jesus, which is one event, is the constitutive event, which then has ongoing significance every single week as we partake of the Lord's body and blood. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Now this is not simply for the reason why your mother told you to eat all your food because there are starving children in Africa. It is that they prepared just enough food to be able to provide everyone with the meal. And of course, in the initial Passover, they left then the next day. No coolers, refrigerators, they couldn't take anything with it. But the practice of consuming all uh, was at the beginning of the Passover, and it continued to be uh, the most ancient practice in the church with respect to the Lord's Supper. Not reserving it in a tabernacle, but consuming all. Verse 5, you, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So a male lamb or goat without blemish. You see the connection there? To Jesus, the Lamb of God, without sin, who became the sin bearer. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So the whole congregation is doing this. Well, not everyone is picking up the knife to slit the lamb's throat, but the officiant in the, in the uh, time of Jesus, the high priest, was the overseer of the, sacrificial, the sacrifices of these Passover lambs. And twilight, what time of day is that? Just before sundown. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. The bitter herbs signified and reminded them of the bitter bondage in Egypt. Unleavened bread, the bread of haste for a trip, a journey, a pilgrimage. Mix it up, bake it up, eat it up, pack a few for the road, and hit the road. 
Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. So the life was in the blood. The blood is completely roasted out. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and whatever remains until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this idea of pilgrim food for a sojourn, and that's what the Lord's Supper is, pilgrim food for a sojourn. You know the hymn some of you know? I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home. Well, the Lord's Supper is provided as a daily food and sustenance to nurture the body of Christ as we follow Jesus through suffering and death to the resurrection and on to glory. Let me pause here in the reading then to give you a little bit of a, a lesson on our own communion rail now. There is at this rail, and it's kind of turned in to each other, signifying communion that we're sharing with one another in the blood of Christ is also bearing one another's burdens. It is like there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten posts holding up the rail. However, each post is made up of four posts. So that's four times ten, the number 40. The number 40 is, in the Bible, characteristic of earthly pilgrimage, earthly sojourn, earthly trial and tribulation. So you've got the children of Israel were 40 years in the wilderness from Mount Sinai and the golden calf incident until they entered into the promised land. Uh, the period of Lent is 40 days minus the Sundays. They're in Lent, but not of Lent because Jesus was, on our behalf, tempted by the Lord in the wilderness. Okay? So the number 40 is kind of significant, and so we have it at our altar rail as we go through our earthly sojourn. Uh, we are nourished by the Lord's body and blood. One other thing to note about the architecture here is the corners of the altar, over there and here, they're sometimes referred to as the horns of the altar, so the angle from this angle of the communion rail shoots right up to the horn of the altar on both sides. So this is a way architecturally and artistically the eyes are drawn to what is at the center of our worship, namely the, the altar, Jesus' body and blood given up upon the cross. So a few things that you may not have realized. And Martin Luther said that a crucifix should be above the altar where the Lord's Supper is, uh, is offered to signify and teach that the Lord's body and blood offered up on the cross is now distributed in the sacrament. Okay, back to the text. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now notice how in verse 12, it is the Lord who is executing this judgment. Do you remember 
You may freely eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's God's word. So according to God's own word, Adam and Eve fell under the condemnation of being separated from God, dying spiritually. So that is God's doing. And what we have in Jesus, as we've talked about with the incarnation and the crucifixion of our Lord, is he, the Son of God, becomes man and dies our death. So the death and the punishment that you and I deserve fell upon him. So I will execute judgment, but by the blood, the judgment of the Lord passes over and you are set free. Verse uh, 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague of death and judgment. It's interesting, it's called a plague, which uh, in the Psalter, Psalm 91, a deadly pestilence. Okay? Some think we're in a deadly pestilence, you know, with COVID-19, but it is nothing compared to the deadly pestilence that took every firstborn that was not clothed with the blood. Why every firstborn? Because it points forward to the only begotten Son of God who would bear that judgment. So I will see the blood and I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. Remember Jesus' words twice spoken in the words of institution, this do in remembrance of me. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So the Lord's, the Passover, called a feast to be kept as an everlasting ordinance, one that doesn't end, finds its fulfillment in Jesus' death and in the Lord's Supper, which knows no end. It is an everlasting ordinance. So there's a continuity, a continuation, a fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now I have some bullets here and then we can discuss these along the way. The third bullet, all the actions of the initial Passover and its ongoing celebration foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross and the ongoing celebration of the Lord's Supper. The next bullet is where I like to focus, especially for new catechumens, but also for you old catechumens who've been through the ringer many times. Two fundamental actions in that Old Testament Passover. First action, the slaughter of the lamb. In the New Testament, it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed or slaughtered for us. And secondly, the eating of the lamb. Do you see the parallel here then with the gospel? Our Lord, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is slaughtered on the altar of the cross. And in the Lord's Supper, the benefit of the Father having offered up his Son and the Son having shed his blood for us is then distributed in the Lord's Supper. 
And that same pattern was true of the Old Testament, as we'll continue to talk about. In biblical time, this is interesting, evening and morning, remember at creation there was evening and morning the first day, there was evening and morning the second day. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper from the Passover on the same day as his crucifixion from the perspective of biblical time because Friday actually began at sundown on Thursday. This is why in, have you heard this phrase, any of you? Try duum. Try duum. The three days, which begins Thursday night, which is the beginning of Friday day. Friday night, which is the beginning of Saturday day. And Saturday night, which is the beginning of Sunday day, the third day. That's why we have the Easter vigil on Saturday night, and even in the darkness of the night are announcing the resurrection because it's evening and morning. By the time the women arrived to the tomb, Jesus had already been raised from the dead. But you may have also noticed, like this year, if you were paying attention, the pastor didn't give a benediction on Maundy Thursday. He didn't give a benediction on Good Friday. He gave the benediction on Easter. Did anybody notice that? Susan did. Okay. Well, that's, what that's intended to signify liturgically is that's actually all one service. See that? So his instituting the Lord's Supper, his death upon the cross, and his glorious bodily resurrection from the dead the third day are all this great triduum. Okay? The one divine service spread out over the three days. You follow that? So the divine service is the death and resurrection of Christ and the gift of his body and blood, but it is all one of a piece. Okay. Uh, of all the old, uh, of all the elements used in the Old Testament Passover, Jesus used the unleavened bread and the grape wine for the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine, you know, I, ha I have a bowl of bitter herbs up here, and I, I'm feeding bitter herbs into you every week, okay? But that's not what it is. Or how many of you do not like lamb? Now, I happen to love lamb, especially if it's young lamb, not like mutton or something like that. But not roasted with all of its blood out. You want a nice uh, medium, medium rare lamb. Can you imagine if every Lord's Supper we were distributing lamb? No, of all of the foods consumed in the Old Testament, Passover, what Jesus borrows and extends into the Lord's Supper is unleavened bread and wine. How curious, not lamb. He does not use the lamb because he is the lamb. Okay, The lamb is signified by him giving us his body and his blood in and with and under the bread and wine of the sacrament. Okay. Next bullet. The Old Testament Passover finds its fulfillment in the death of Christ and the ongoing feast of the Lord's Supper as an everlasting ordinance, as we have said. The role of the officiant 
at the Passover table parallels the role of the officiant at the divine service. So the officiant in the Old Testament Passover was the head of the household, whoever that was. So you go to the Bruss household, it's John Bruss Sr., and he is the presiding minister, in a sense, of the Passover celebration. And there are prayers that he is to lead the congregation in. And there is the, uh, the family in. There's the telling of the story that he is to lead the family in. He is to encourage the children to ask questions. Why do we eat bitter herbs? Why do we eat unleavened bread? What is the meaning of this night? And if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, that's reflected in the movie beautifully. Uh, and if you come to the Easter Vigil, you can see all of these connections, particularly in the service of light, and then the thanksgiving when everyone's candle is burning and the pastor is at the font, the Easter exalted. This is the night. Uh, over and over repeated all of these things. And the, this is the night, going back to the Old Testament Passover, finds its fulfillment in Christ. Okay. So, catechesis, preaching, conversation. It recalls the Lord's saving acts for the faithful, repentant reception of the cup of blessing in the feast. And I put the cup of blessing in quotes because it refers to a particular cup in the singular in the Old Testament Passover, which then St. Paul talks about when catechizing the church in her practice in the New Testament. When Paul uses it, and we'll take a look at that text shortly, he says the cup of blessing, that's referring to the Old Testament Passover. Now he takes it into the New which we bless in the Lord's Supper. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The answer is yes. So what was this cup of blessing? In the Old Testament Passover, the officiant had uh, a cup, or a, like a chalice, and there were various prayers that were offered prior to the consumption of the cup. Uh, for example, Eucharistic prayers or Thanksgiving prayers, the cup of Thanksgiving. It was really the same cup, but it was sort of like, I, I don't want to be uh, uh, profane, but it was sort of like a toast. You know, you fill up the cup and you offer the prayer of Thanksgiving for the Lord's faithfulness, and then the officiant drank from the cup, and then everyone at the table drank from the cup. And then he would add additional wine and pray the prayers of the Lord's blessing of salvation and deliverance from the angel of death, the bondage in Egypt, and he would drink in the cup of blessing and then that cup of blessing would be shared with those at the table. The idea being, if you're drinking the cup of blessing, you are drinking in the blessing of the Lord's deliverance from slavery. 
So that's taken over the concept also in the New Testament church, and Paul refers to it. The cup of blessing which we bless. It is blessed at the consecration when the pastor says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So when we partake of the cup in faith, we are partaking of the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's the blessing. Do you follow that? Okay. Yes. Well, uh, uh, they don't believe. Oh boy, this. I mean, <laughs> Jews are not Christians today. So they're so so Christ and the fulfillment in His death and resurrection, and it um, it becomes a memorial meal of. Uh, something that happened in the past, it becomes a history lesson, that's it. Okay, so that's, yeah. And no sacrifice. Because the Jewish friend I had growing up, they would have a Passover meal, but there was no sacrifice. Yeah, no sacrifices. There was no slaughter. and There aren't any sacrifices in the Judaism today. So uh, any and all sacrifices in Judaism ended in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. You take all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament out of Judaism today, and it becomes nothing more than a works righteous, moral, ethical religion. You're saved by your by your ethical behavior, your good works. Pastor. Yes, John. So the officiant in uh, you know 470 A.D. and even today uh, takes the cup, sups. Yes. Isn't that what we should be doing here? Well, uh, I'm kind of getting there. I'm laying out the foundation so that you see, and I've got a bullet coming up on the next page. It talks about it's only in recent times that there has been a variation in the mode of distribution. And interestingly, it has also corresponded and come out of those churches that have denied the real presence of Christ's body and blood or have watered it down. And wasn't this a controversy uh, right after the Reformation as well? Yes. The order of the divine service must be, this is still under this role of efficient, preaching followed by the Lord's Supper. Have a good appointment. Preaching followed by the Lord's Supper. Um, there have been innovative practices, I've seen it in the late 20th century, where um, the order, the base order of the divine service is altered. And the Lord's Supper is celebrated right away, and then the preaching becomes a uh, moral, ethical, holy life, self-help talk after that to send you out into the world. That is not the apostolic pattern. Uh, from the Old Testament, then St. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 indicate that there were terrible, terrible, terrible problems in the church in Corinth in the celebration of the sacrament people coming to the sacrament because they're hungry for earthly food and pushing and shoving and then getting drunk 
at the table of the Lord. It's what causes him to say, when you come, you're not coming for the Lord's Supper. You see, because they're, they're coming for completely different motivations. And then he goes back to the Lord's word. When I came to you, I delivered to you that which I also received. Our Lord Jesus Christ and the night when he was betrayed took bread and so forth. So right celebration of the Lord's Supper. Some of you are familiar with uh, the Augsburg Confession. The church exists where the gospel is preached faithfully and the sacraments are administered according to Christ's institution. Part of that institution involves not merely the narrow, here I've got some bread, here I've got some wine, and then I say Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, now we've got proper sacrament. No, it's in the context of the church's catechesis, each week's faithful preaching, which leads to repentance and faith. And we'll be building that theme as we, as we you know, move forward. So, preaching followed by the Lord's Supper. To drink together from the cup of blessing signified the reception of redemption from slavery. The apostolic doctrine of the Lord's Supper highlights its connection with the Old Testament Passover, the real presence of Christ's body and blood, and the communion of the body of Christ, the church, with Christ's body and blood for our forgiveness and mutual support of one another in Christ. Now this last bullet leads us into um, accenting the corporate nature of the Lord's Supper. When a person is baptized, it's an individual person being baptized and by baptism joined to Christ's death and resurrection, and brought into the church. It's a lovely tradition if churches can have fonts at the door, at the entrance, to signify baptism is how we enter into Christ and how we enter into the church. But it is still, even if we had at an Easter vigil four or five baptisms, each baptism is done individually. Do you follow what I'm saying? So, Kathy, what's your middle name? Kathy Jean, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. David, what's your middle name? Roger. Roger. David Roger, I baptize you. We wouldn't say everybody's name and then I baptize you and take a fire hose out of the congregation. It's just everyone's being baptized together. Baptism, while it's brought into the church, joined to Christ, it is an individual sacrament. Not so of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, by its very character, going back to the Old Testament Passover, is a corporate event. At the time of the Reformation, they frowned on and spoke against private masses. So I try to accent, even with shut-ins who are, because of infirmity, unable to be with us, that I am taking the divine service of the congregation to them. Okay. So it is a corporate event by its very nature. And in our own altar here, the way in which it curves in upon itself and we're kneeling together is intended to highlight that aspect. It was a congregation's kneeling together as a table uh, as opposed to um, you know, continuous uh, communing that way. 
So it accents the, uh, that idea of communion. And as, as this bullet said, the communion of the body of Christ, the church, of which each of us are members through our baptism, with Christ's body and blood, for mutual forgiveness and reception of that forgiveness, and mutual support from one another. This is why the pastor is concerned that those who commune are not holding grudges to somebody against someone in the congregation. So if Wally is holding a grudge against David, we need to deal with that problem so you let go of David's sins and forgive him and he you that you both may partake worthily of Christ's body and blood. So this corporate character of the sacrament, holy communion, when we use that term, means not only I as an individual Christian am in communion with my singular Lord, and it has nothing to do with any of the rest of yous. That's, 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 that's what undermines the body of Christ. No, when we go to the altar, we are not only in communion, we'll be developing this theme next week too and the week after, not only in communion with our Lord Jesus, his body and blood, but through that with one another. Here again is why, John, the cup of blessing being shared by all is a significant uh, symbol of that kind of communion. Susan. Yeah, but that is not a bap that 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 is more Lord's Supper-ish. That's Day of Atonement. That's why the sacrifice, all of the sacrifices, including as the bullet is, bullet said, the Day of Atonement, okay, are signified thereby. Now, it's an individual sacrament baptism, but then you are connected with the entire congregation. Turn in your Lutheran catechesis to page 279 as we go over to uh, the catechism in detail. Wally? And, and communion would go with the mission of the church. The yes. Of yes. Communion, uh, that's a very good point. Communion goes with the mission of the church in reconciliation. Okay? Christianity is the most non-racist religion on the planet because all are made one in Christ. So to eat and drink from the cup of the Lord, black and yellow, red and white, all together at the cup of the Lord signifies that very thing. Okay? All right, uh, let's go through the questions here. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Notice four points I have there for you. Uh, under letter A, this part of the catechism speaks of the essence. What is it? 
It is the true body and blood. Where is it found or located? Under the bread and wine. Who gave it to us? It was instituted by Christ himself. And what are we to do with it? Eat it and drink it. So that first question, the essence. Now, the text of God's word upon which it is based. Where is this written? The holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said... Now, these, this is what's called the consecration, or the words of institution. Keep going. Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All right, now, in remembrance of me at the end there, it is anchored in the promise. Uh, the, the promise of the sacrament is anchored in Christ's death and resurrection. So let's take the point, starting with B here, I've highlighted for you the actual words of Jesus. So you notice in the verba, that's the Latin for the word, in the verba here, or the words of institution, there's the narrative portion, and then what Jesus actually said of the bread and actually said of the wine. And what he actually said, letter B, take, eat, there's, what are we to do with it? This is my body, that's what it is, which is given for you, that takes us both to the cross where it was given up and now in the sacrament where it is given for you. So Christ's body is united with the bread by the word of Christ. This is my body. And like last week, this is performative speech. So you cannot have the Lord's Supper without Jesus' words, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, spoken of the bread. And that has been the practice of the church for 2,000 years. Now, notice what it says here. Christ's body is united with the bread by the word of Christ. The Reformed um, Armenian and other traditions deny since the Reformation that Christ's body is actually given and received that Christ's blood is actually given and received. For them, the Lord's Supper becomes not a sacrament in which Christ feeds us for our salvation, but one of obedience in which we reflect upon and remember a past event. Okay? Uh, the Roman point of view, after the Reformation highlighted at the Council of Trent is the so-called doctrine of transubstantiation, which means that the bread no longer is bread, but is transformed into the body of Christ. Now, of the two positions, the Reformed 
uh, and the Roman. Uh, the Roman position is better because at least we have the real presence of Christ's body and blood. However, part of the reason for the Roman teaching of transubstantiation is that like so much of Roman theology, like Jesus, uh, Mary is immaculately conceived so that she has no sin because God would not join himself to the flesh of a sinner. Do you follow? Now, it, the immaculate conception, that's false teaching. There's, no, there's nowhere in the scripture that that is found. Mary is a sinful human being as much as Kathy is. She is, we talked about that, cleansed, Mary is, so are you, by the way, cleansed by the word and spirit of God. But the Son of God really does join himself to human flesh. So the human flesh is not annihilated. He becomes one with the human flesh. So also the body of Christ, the bread is not annihilated, but he becomes united with the bread. That's why it says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So as we partake of the bread and as we partake of the wine, we are partaking of the body and blood of Christ that has been joined by Jesus' performative word to those earthly elements. So Christ's body and blood is truly distributed, eaten, and drunk in and with and under the earthly elements of the bread and wine. So that's highlighted here uh, under B and D. C, this do in remembrance of me, we partake of the sacrament and receive the gift of Jesus' true body and blood with faith in all that Christ has done for us in his death. That's why preaching precedes the Lord's Supper's celebration. Because we are constantly reminded of, called to repentance for sin and faith in Christ through that word so that we receive his body and blood faithfully. Letter E, the cup is. Notice the singular verb, the cup is. Not the cups are, but the cup is signifies the holy communion, which we were talking about before, or holy fellowship with Christ and one another in Christ. Out of the cup of blessing in the Passover, Christ instituted the cup of salvation in the Lord's Supper. And that's recorded in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Uh, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Yes, it is. So what does this communion or fellowship then mean? What does it signify? Three little bullets that are very significant. He takes all our sin, burdens, sicknesses, and suffering. We receive his forgiveness, life, salvation, comfort, and healing. Now, I promised you some quotations from the church fathers, that's for next week, that will highlight not only the real presence of his body and blood, but the, what this means miraculously. We are partaking of 
what the ancients called the medicine of immortality. So hardly to be feared, the Lord's Supper is something that we should hunger and thirst for as Christians. Jesus' body and blood will not harm you, Wally, unless you partake of it as an impenitent sinner without faith in Jesus. But if you partake of it as a repentant Christian, hungering and thirsting for life, it will not harm you. It gives you life and salvation. Second bullet, in Holy Communion, we together confess our sins and forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, sicknesses, and sorrows, and rejoice with one another in Christ who makes us one in him. And we share all things with one another in the body of Christ. Now, I didn't put it at this bullet, but this is the appropriate time to also reflect on how the church viewed the Lord's Supper as a marriage feast between and with the bridegroom and his bride, the church. And the feasting reflected the idea of the church being one flesh, one body with Christ. Remember in Genesis, God made man in his own image, the image of likeness he made him, male and female. Into Adam's nostrils he breathed the breath of life. Adam became a living soul. At the end of chapter 2, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of Adam's side he formed the woman Eve. He brought her to the man. This is now bone of my bone flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, woman, for she was taken out of man. And in the Passion of our Lord, we highlighted, and that's the climax of the St. John Passion, the blood and water flowing out of Jesus' pierced side after he leaves his mother and appoints John to care for her. He is being united with his bride, the church. Okay? As all descended from Adam as sinners subject to death and condemnation, all are redeemed in the second Adam, Christ, who takes us all to himself as his holy bride. And if you think about, and then she shall be called one, they shall be called one flesh. That's holy communion language. That is why such things as I go on here uh, notice the language of corporate communion or fellowship in the church's liturgy and hymnody regarding the Lord's Supper. In the weeks ahead, note that when, when we're singing the liturgy. The idea of communion, which leads into this next letter, F. Only in relatively recent times has the church altered the mode of distribution. Not only individual cups, plastic disposable cups. So... You partake in a plastic cup and throw it in the garbage can. That cannot help but communicate a lesser point of view with respect to the sacrament. And then most recently, drive-through. I mean, literally, like we have the drive-through fish fry. That's not against God's word, certainly. Uh, but can you imagine receiving drive-through communion that way? You know, I could, I could be masked under the canopy, and then you could drive through and let your window come down and give you the sacrament and go through. Some churches have actually done that. 
Now, what seems to be absurd is becoming the reality. And that's unfortunate. Or online communion. So in the safety of your home, where you don't need to associate with anybody but yourself, you can put whatever elements you can find on the table in front of the computer screen and while the service is going, I don't have any unleavened bread, or you can use saltine crackers, I don't have any grape wine, I don't particularly like grape wine, but I use cranberry juice because it is good for my kidneys. Now, you think that I'm being absurd, I am not. These kinds of things are going on today and have over this past year. And there is no supervision there is no jurisdiction as to what goes on. When you come here, you ought to have, and you should, the full assurance that you are receiving the proper elements in the proper liturgy with the proper words of Christ for the benefit of the whole congregation. And when we talk about closed communion, you have the right to assume that everyone has been baptized, confesses their sin, their faith in Christ, Okay? And that's all part of right administration of the sacrament. Okay. G, in love and mercy, we attempt to bear with the fearful in offering the Lord's Supper so that they are still enabled to receive in the confidence of faith in Christ. Now, what does that mean? 30 years ago when I came here, the common cup was in uh, a bag in the vestry sacristy, not used. It was only individual. We moved quickly to the use of, of common cup in addition to offering the individual because that had been the congregational practice. But the church's preferred method for 2,000 years has been the common cup, John, because of what it signifies in terms of communion. I remember well my first couple of years in the ministry taking communion in Iowa to the shut-ins and Mrs. Moeller in particular in the nursing home who had suffered a stroke. And she was, if I practiced intinction, which is moistening the host and giving it to her, able to commune. But as the weeks progressed, um, she became less and less able physically to receive. And on one occasion, as I placed the body and blood of Christ into her mouth, she could not swallow it. And so I reached into her mouth and pulled out the consecrated host that had been dipped in the wine, and I consumed it. That is actually what Holy Communion signifies. This is Christ's body and blood, given and shed for our salvation, in the plural, for our forgiveness. We forgive one another, we bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, as it, as it were. One of the things during the past year that has been most destructive, an article from Hillsdale uh, college has indicated that some 850,000 people have died, not because of having gotten COVID, 
but because they were so afraid of having gotten COVID, they were so isolated, many of them became depressed, suicides were on the rise, they stopped going to doctor's appointments for checkups and screenings, they didn't get treatment for cancer, and they can, do, they can run the numbers statistically on this. And so you can see not only is there, you know, there were COVID deaths, but an additional 850,000 because people were denied the loving touch of physical contact. The church is a physical body in this world. The church is not a Gnostic body where you have this knowledge, but you're not in communion with one another. That, that the physicality of our existence is significant goes all the way back to creation itself Adam from the dust, Eve from Adam's side. And in the Holy Communion with Christ the second Adam, that is reconstituted. Um, many a father or mother has nursed, in the sense of physical health, the sick child, running the risk of gaining the sickness themselves. Or a husband with his wife, or a wife with her husband. That is more reflective of the character, the nature of the church, than isolation, separation, lack of physical contact, and so forth. So the liturgical actions and care of the Lord's Supper are intended to hold up the real presence of Christ's true body and blood, treating it with the utmost reverence and respect. And so... Uh, many of you notice that in the divine service, Pastor Gelbach and I, at the end of the second service on Sunday, will have consumed everything, rinsed it with water, consumed that. When the communion guild uh, cleans the vessels after the service, first it's plain water, and then it's poured into the ground, and then they wash it. The idea is not that you're going to get every molecule of uh, consecrated bread and wine uh, consumed, but it treats it with the degree of dignity and respect accorded what it is, namely the body and blood of Christ. So we'll continue to highlight some of those practices uh, in the next couple of weeks. Polly? I'm going to talk about that question under our extended closed communion discussion, if I can, especially because of our time today also, all right? Let us prepare for the Lord's Supper with hymn 617, and also in the prayer of the church. You'll notice liturgically the prayer of the church, which covers every conceivable topic that the Lord enjoins his church to pray for, it happens right before the Holy Communion itself. And so in that prayer of the church, we are confessing the 
sins of one another. We're praying for one another, including the civil authorities and the sick and so forth. That's the appropriate prayer and mindset anticipating this Holy Communion in Christ's body and blood. So, uh, hymn 617, O Lord, we praise thee. Martin Luther's hymn on the Lord's Supper. O Lord, we praise thee. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, 
confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies, especially for the gift of your dear Son and for the revelation of your will and grace. Implant your word in us that with good and honest hearts we may keep it and bring forth the fruits of faith. We humbly implore you to rule and govern your church throughout the world. Bless all those who proclaim your truth, that we may be preserved in the pure doctrine of your saving word, and that faith in you may be strengthened, love toward others increased, and your kingdom extended. Send forth laborers into your harvest, and sustain those whom you have sent, that the word of reconciliation may be proclaimed to all people, and the gospel preached in all the world. Grant health and prosperity to all who are in authority, especially to the President and Congress of the United States, the Governor and Legislature of this state, and to all those who make, administer, and judge our laws. Grant them grace to rule according to your good pleasure for the maintenance of righteousness and the hindrance and punishment of wickedness, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. According to your good pleasure, turn the hearts of our enemies and adversaries that they may cease their hostilities and walk with us in meekness and in peace. Comfort, O God, with your Holy Spirit, all who are in trouble, want, sickness, anguish of labor, peril of death, or any other adversity, especially Paul, David, Kurt, Carol, Marcy, Bernice, Jim, Barb, Jeremy, Gabby, Timothy, Irwin, Jill, Allison, Roger, and Father Wolcomen's daughter. Grant courage and steadfastness, especially to those who suffer for your name's sake, that they may receive and accept their afflictions in the confidence that you will acknowledge them as your own. Although we have deserved your righteous wrath and punishment, Yet we ask you, O most merciful Father, not to remember the sins of our youth nor our many transgressions. Out of your unspeakable goodness and mercy, defend us from all harm and danger to body and soul. Preserve us from false doctrine, from war and bloodshed, from plague and pestilence, from all calamity by fire and water, from hail and tempest, from failure of harvest and from famine from anguish of heart and despair of your mercy, and from an evil death. 
In every time of trouble, show yourself a very present help, the Savior of all. These and whatsoever things you would have us ask of you, grant us for the sake of Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We give them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb, who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying, he has destroyed death, and by his rising again, he has restored to us everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation, for you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. By his death, he has redeemed us from bondage to sin and death, and by his resurrection, he has delivered us into new life in him. Grant us to keep the feast in sincerity and truth, faithfully eating his body given into death and drinking his life's blood poured out for our salvation until we pass through death to the promised land of life eternal. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, 
he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace.
thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.